I'd ask this morning that you would turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. How do I do that? Flip to the Pauline epistles and find Galatians. And, and don't, don't cheat and look in your table of contents. I see you with the phones over there. You don't even ever have to learn anything about where the stuff is in the Bible. You just click on your Bible app. Galatians 4 is one of the most challenging epistles for a lot of reasons. It's Paul's earliest letter. Most Bible-believing scholars would agree that it's the earliest one we have. Used to, they said it was 1 Thess, Thessalonians, and then there was this theory called the North Galatia, or the South the Northern Galatian theory, and it was people were really excited about this historical thing about these um, Galois, these people from um, Europe who had colonized, and so they wanted to force it into this. Paul goes up to the to the the European enclave, but uh, unlikely, very likely, Paul writes in Galatians to the churches that he established in his first missionary journey: Lister, Derby, uh, um, Iconium. Um, Pisidian Antioch, these are the southern Galatian towns that Paul had ministry in, and we read a lot about it in Acts chapter 13 and 14. But um, they got hold of the gospel. This is the place, by the way, that Timothy's from, this same area. Um, They got hold of the gospel early in Paul's ministry, and in his first letter, chronologically, that we have in the Bible of the 13 from Paul, it's a correction of them. There's been enough time by around 48 AD for Paul to be wearing them out in this punitive letter for their rebellion against God and their denial of the gospel. They've been influenced by false teachers that came behind the apostle Paul and they added works to the gospel. And that pattern has not ceased in church history. There are different culprits, different parties have been guilty of this, but Galatians is the only letter like it in tone where Paul starts off not with, uh, it's good to see you, how's everyone doing, but just he starts whipping them right away. He says after identifying himself and that he's writing to the churches of Galatia, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forevermore, amen. And then I'm amazed. Not I give thanks to God for you. Not I'm praying for you like he says to the Ephesian church. Not every time I remember you, I thank God for you like he says to Philippians in prison while well, he's in prison. But here... He begins with, I personally am floored. I am amazed, Thalmazo. I'm amazed you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. What's the different gospel? Jesus Christ plus something else. They haven't denied Christ. That's a different problem we read about in Jude. They haven't said, you Christians have missed it. You need to get back to Moses. That's not the problem. It's Judaizers coming behind Paul saying, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but gentlemen, we need to have our surgery so that you can become part of Israel and then truly benefit from Christ. About this error, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians that he wishes that those troubling them 
to have a small surgery would actually have a much larger surgery. I wish that they would completely mutilate themselves, he says. It, he doesn't really pull a lot of punches in, Galatian, in the book of Galatians. And it's got a great deal of, uh, of meat for us, and it's also got a, great, a, a lot of challenges, especially in chapters 3 and 4. But in chapter 4, you have the clearest statement of the believer's inheritance or adoption in the New Testament. And I want to focus in on that. So I've given you a little bit of a background, a little bit of understanding what Paul's doing. We're studying in the riches of divine grace the blessings associated with our regeneration, our new birth, what it means that we have this life. And something has gone awry. Oh, I see what happened. Wow. These are the irrevocable blessings of regeneration by one way of counting them. The things that are already true for you, and the reason I keep saying this, is because you and I both know that there are times in your day, in your week, when you don't think of yourself this way. You're not thinking in terms of the truth that God has given you about yourself, but you need to. You were born again, which means you now have eternal life, which means you are children of God. We are all sons of God, though, by faith in Christ Jesus, according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. One of the famous verses that your, your King James says, we're all children of God. Huios, you're all sons of God, because he's going to start talking about inheritance. These are all different aspects, the different ways of describing this one facet of your new birth, of the regeneration. We haven't even mentioned the baptism of the Spirit when we say regeneration. We haven't even talked about uh, your union with Christ or the blood of Christ applied to you and all that the New Testament says about that. We have, through this long study, discussed these things, but I'm focusing in on that you're born again. What does that mean? And it all comes down to who are you born to? What does it mean that you're born again? Born to God as his child. And because you're his begotten child, spiritually, through the work of the Spirit, giving you a new spirit, because you are born again, he has designated you as his heir. And that's what we're talking about in terms of New Testament adoption. Adoption is not the new birth. It is the declaration of inheritance to someone born in the household. That's my contention on the New Testament doctrine of adoption. And I want to just start with a few points on this. Believers have been born again into new life in Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you've been born again to new life. It doesn't mean that you felt something. Devotion writers have often tried to say that their emotional ecstatic experience, when they first understood the gospel after a lifetime of sin, that that's the norm, that feeling something compelling was the moment that they knew they were born again, that they had this energy sort of event. John Wesley popularized this approach, and Methodism was the first denomination in the colonies to have a million people in it. It was very popular and well-received. Fanny Crosby, who memorized, under her parents' direction, a huge chunk of the Bible before she was a teenager. 
because she was a genius and she was blind and she was memorizing scripture, raised Baptist, raised believe in Christ as your Savior, said that she had a conversion experience when she, when she went to a Methodist meeting because you have this feeling. And they try to normativize this emotional experience. Some have called it being slain in the spirit or something. But we're not talking about anything people feel and then say that's what the Bible says. We're talking about what the Bible actually says. And in Galatians 3.28, for example, it says, We're all children or sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Not by tarrying, not by trying to feel something deeply, but by faith. When you trusted in Christ as your Savior, you were, in that instant, by God's grace, in the work of the third person of the Trinity, born again. Second, and this makes us God's children by spiritual birth or regeneration. And that's a special sense where you're children of God. This doesn't mean you're part of the human race. This means that you're part of the portion of the human race that's been called out by the gospel. And at the effective moment when you trusted in Christ, you've been transferred into a new family. You've been born again. And so it isn't the world. It's kind of like those that are not part of the world. children by spiritual birth. And third, God has also designated us as heirs in Christ. God not only regenerated you, but he has said something. He has made a proclamation of inheritance. He has designated you as heirs. And so this right to eternal inheritance is your adoption in Christ. And so what I'm trying to do is draw a distinction from how you got in the family to what God has done with you since you're in the family. I'm trying to break free from our cultural, you know, language of what adoption means, which means you join a family, and say, no, 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 the new birth is not an, an unnaturally born child is born into the family. That's not, this is not um, olive tree language about being grafted in. We're not talking about that. People want to go there. Well, we've been grafted in as the wild olive branch to the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And so they want to say that the family is Israel and blah, blah. No, that's not what we're talking about at all. All believers in Jesus Christ are born again by spiritual regeneration, spiritual birth without reference to anything that was ever required other beyond that, like surgery for the Abrahamic covenant or something. This is called being part of the royal family of God or the household of God. And when God begot you as his child, he also designated you as his heir. Now we would assume, wouldn't we? that you, if you were born into your parents' household, you would be their heir. We would expect that to be the case. That's the normal expectation, unless something horrible has happened, unless there's been some horrible disruption. And then you have the disowning, we call it. But notice that when a child is disowned and no longer to receive the father's inheritance, can't stop being the parent's child. They can say, I don't own you as a child in the sense of inheritance, but you are still the heir of their DNA. You still have what they gave you, good and bad, from being their child. You're still trained up in their household to whatever extent you were. And whatever the disruption doesn't change the fact that you're part of the, ha- the family. But you don't get to enjoy the benefits of it under inheritance if there's a disowning. And the reason I draw this parallel to our culture is because Paul is saying 
you have been born and you have been designated. And those are both blessings that no one can ever take away from you. You've been born into the household and you've been designated as an heir because you're in Christ and no one can ever take these things away from you. And the security that you and I need to gain in that awareness of our identity is supposed to so stabilize you that you're able to do the things that God wants you to do in a hostile environment to those acts. Not only are you capitalized as the heir, you've been inserted into enemy territory. We were talking about the Navy SEALs a minute ago. You've been high altitude, low opening, dropped into a situation where you have a mission that is directly opposed to the agenda of the power in the foreign country that you're, that you're, you're operating in. And that foreign power that owns the territory that you're operating within wants to do nothing more than to stop you from your work, from your mission. He's got a lot of ways to do it. He can buy you. He can buy you off where you listen to his little messengers a little bit and follow them and say, okay, I'll take a bribe. I'll, I'll take some ease. I'll take some comfort and not get back on mission. He can bring direct opposition force against you and you can have a shootout. And so now you've got you know, a small little SEAL team against a big army and, uh, and I can't fight that fight. There are lots of ways that you can be opposed, but if you think about why those SEALs have been inserted in that foreign territory, they've got a mission. They're there to do whatever job they've been sent to do. When you think of it in terms of mission, it's not about, well, is, is, is someone going to get my security or my safety or some other thing? One of the most insidious things is that you would get them to join you, is that the enemy would, would not just buy them off, but get them to change which side they were working for. So now the SEALs are on a different mission. That's an unthinkable thing when you think of it in military terms, but that's what happens when we find ourselves opposed to God here in this foreign soil called the world Satan is administering, where we are, are, are just little us, sent to go make disciples in a culture, in a situation, in a world circumstance, in every culture that is directly opposed to that agenda. So you have a very high calling and a hard challenge God has put in front of you, and you need what we're talking about. You need to know these things are true. And two things we're going for here are identity and purpose. Two things we're going for in understanding this. Look, look at me right now, please. Your identity and your purpose. And what you're going to do as you leave and you, these thoughts kind of vanish is you're going to forget who you are or what you're for. My prayer is that you won't forget who you are and what you're for. But one way you won't forget is we look at what God's word says about who you are by the new birth and by God's designation as heir, by adoption. And this is for a purpose. Fifth, the great demonstration of our adoption is the indwelling spirit of God. The great demonstration of your adoption in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. And we'll look a little bit at Ephesians 1 today. Is that you have the Holy Spirit in you, the earnest or down payment of the inheritance. You know you're an heir of God because God put his spirit in you and that capitalizes you for the work God has for you to do. I want you to go build a business, says the magnate, says the, the, the great business owner. I need you to go and, uh, and, and open up another branch or whatever. Be part of my mission. Well, I'm going to need some scratch. I'm going to need some capital to do that, Dad. Okay, 
Here's the earnest. Here's the beginning seed money to let you go do this work. Now you've got power. You've got what's necessary to go build a business. Go be wise in your use of this capitalization. That is the way the Apostle Paul describes, pardon my illustration, but that he's, he's the earnest or the beginning of the distribution of the inheritance that you have the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.14. How do I know that I've been adopted? I've been given the Spirit of God to live in me forever. And sixth, this doctrine directs us to our identity. Who am I? And my purpose, what am I for? Who am I and what am I for? Why do you not do the things that you're supposed to do? Because you've lost purpose. How have you lost purpose? How in the world have you lost track of God's purpose for you? You forgot who you were. So we'll grab both of these in Galatians 4 and Ephesians 1 today. Galatians chapter 4, it says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is owner of everything. The reason I select this passage is because the Apostle Paul shows in the flow of his argument within the flow of history of what God has done in salvation from Adam until the church age, He's showing that there is a difference between uh, the designation of somebody that's a child. Yeah, that's my kid. He came from me. I, I begot him. That's my child. And the heir, the one who's been given the last name, if you will, or the family business, the, the one who inherits. And he uses both, both words, technon for child and heir for kleronomos, the one who inherits. As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Roman lifestyle and how a wealthy family would inevitably have servants that were not merely in the employ, but were technically on the, on the profit loss statement of the family business. It's very similar to today where you have a labor market but we have drawn a very solid and glorious distinction between being owned as persons and being employed as persons. And I believe that's a very important distinction. Paul knows about it. He says, if you can be free, be free. But in the household of the wealthy, there will be people that are domestics, that are servants. And in this culture, they were slaves. They were owned. Now, the Roman system of slavery as we study ancient history and look at how they did it and their documents, we can discern many differences between chattel slavery, for example, in the colonies and then in the early phases of the United States and what the Europeans were doing with chattel slavery and the African slave trade. We can talk about the differences, but, but there are a couple things. The Roman indenture, it was more like an indenture. It was often a voluntary thing that was a, was a contractual arrangement you would enter to. You would enter into a slavery arrangement and sell yourself so that at the end of a term, generally seven years of enslavement, as it says in the Mosaic Law, after seven years of enslavement, there would be a financial benefit for the time you had spent. So it was a trade. And the question is, well, was the contract executed at, at the point at which I become a slave? So they give the money then and I'm sold into slavery and that money's now in my account or it's given to my family? Or is it uh, held over my head uh, till after seven years, like when Jacob works for Rachel but gets Leah? How is that distribution given in terms of this employment arrangement? But understand the difference between 
what we would call, that sounds like you've been given a contract for a job. And what they had was the person was considered the property of the slave master. And they were regulated in Rome and the Roman Empire by uh, certain laws regarding, regarding the treatment of slaves. There was a different law for how you would treat a slave from how you treat a free man. They, they did make a distinction. And the slave, understand, when you see slave in the New Testament, you're talking about the bottom of the social economic hierarchy. You're talking about the lowest class of classes. And it's not a, a hard and fast caste system like in, in, in some cultures necessarily in Rome, but there are classes. There is the aristocracy, there's the middle, the, the people that aren't necessarily aristocracy, but they're not slaves, and then there are the slaves. And the slaves were basically people that were household belonging to the business owner that had them working in the home business. And so it wasn't just that they the person turned in a, 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 their work and then the, the, the owner got a benefit and then he paid the slave and he could feed his family. It was that that benefit does happen, that transaction did happen, but that the person also was cared for and regulated as a household member by that large household. It was an ownership in a sense, in a good sense that we also say. I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying there's a good sense where we use the word ownership. When you own something in a good sense, you mean you care for it, that it's your responsibility, that you take ownership, we say, in leadership discussions of something. And that's part of the slave thing. It, I want you to hear the parallels to our day where the government is supposed to provide for our welfare, for our needs. That was the slavery arrangement. I'll do my labor and you'll get the benefit of my labor, but I'll get a place to sleep and I'll get food and I'll be cared for and you'll provide me necessary security with your military forces and so forth. And that is very close to what we're being asked to do by the socialists. Right? Now, I don't want to take you off on too much more of a tangent here, but Roman slavery is a socioeconomic arrangement that involved all of these things, and it's, it, it has to do with being household. And we've kind of lost a sense of this in our, in our approach. We've lost to this idea of household. Have you ever heard of a labor union? Why did we have labor unions in the Industrial Revolution? Why is Henry Ford hiring the Pinkertons to go fight the labor unions physically and have these riots over labor? Because we're treating people like they belong to the factory, like they're part of a machine. You do this, I do this, and we're trying to make this transactional thing, and we're not recognizing that's not a machine, that's a human being, and so what happens? So businesses are now more and more expected to do better care for their actual people there's a reason why you're not talking about widgets. You're talking about humans. And, and labor unions are irrelevant if, if businesses take care of their people. And it's an interesting history we find. But the slave is this little boy in this rich man's house, a plantation owner or something. And he's a slave that uh, he's four years old. And the rich man has a four-year-old son. And they are making mud pies or playing in the backyard or running around trying to stay out of the way of the workers and their foremen and the landowners who are, who are directing the foremen, who are directing the slaves, the workers. But these little boys are running around and they're playing and they're together in the household. And it's time to eat and they run in with their little bare feet and their little, little boy, whatever rag, rags that you would have for play clothes in the first century. And they would run in and they would have food. And the little boy would have his lunch, and the other little boy would have his lunch. There may be a distinction there, maybe. But the point is that when you go outside and you see these little boys playing in the dirt, 
they look the same. They're identical because they're little boys and they're playing. But one of them is a slave. He's born into, into the slave family that is part of this household, of this business. And the other boy belongs to their landowner. And you can't tell them apart. They're both little children. They're both in the household of, of the Roman system. But one is a child of the household and is an heir. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. And that's what I'm trying to say about this Roman idea of adoption. The little, the little boy has people that tend him, and he's making the illustration of the Mosaic law being the tender, being the, the tutor to lead people till Christ came and show humans their need for a Savior. Big, take the big picture. Don't try to put yourself as an individual in Israel in 800 B.C. Say big picture what's God doing. Jesus came to die for our sins. But before that, God had shown the world through his priest nation that we need a savior. The gospel was preached in its need by the Mosaic law. We can't be righteous as God is righteous. But as you know, all scripture is God breathed and it's profitable for teaching in righteousness. So the Mosaic law shows us, shows Israel, shows the world as it looks at the law that we fall short of the infinite righteousness of God. And that's why Jesus had to come to die for our sins. And Paul's showing that the law is a tutor. It was meant to show, to lead mankind, especially Israel, under the law to this need for a savior. And this is the picture he's making in the illustration. The, that child is under guardians. He's under He's, he's, he's being told what to do by slaves. By the way, Roman slaves included school teachers, included college professors, doctors, physicians, but I repeat myself, these people, these professionals were slaves very often. So the householder has a private school in his house and it's an economic arrangement. The person has sold himself for an indenture and he's going to have something to retire on after a few rounds of that. And so that's the arrangement. And so he's got this tutor that's his slave, that's, a, that's the father's slave. And the tutor is telling the little boy that's the householder what to do. And that, could, that happened a lot in Rome. That's how there was an education. And the father has a date where that over, that arrangement ends, that tutoring arrangement is over. And that was a temporary thing to set the boy up to actually function as the heir. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But then when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of, born of woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So we were household children belonging to the father, but until the date that the father set, we weren't adopted as it were because Christ hadn't come but when Jesus came in the fullness of time now the tutor is done and now I have the reality I have this adoption in Christ that's the big and I told you Galatians 4 is challenging but that's the big picture Jesus came born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we that's the Jews might receive the adoption as sons so the inheritance comes when Jesus comes, and the designation heir comes when Jesus comes. Because you are sons, he switches from me to you. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Just like in Romans chapter 8, 
that we've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. It's the same idea in Galatians 4. Because you are his sons, and notice when he says sons, it's right after saying receiving the adoption as sons. Because you are designated as the household heir, the one to inherit, and therefore run the business and be about the father's mission that he has established and that you will carry on in this model, this picture of inheritance. Because you are these sons, these men wearing the toga virilis, the authority. You've got the father's signet ring. You represent the father that has called you not only his child through birth and raised you under this tutelage, but now designated you in Christ as an heir. You are sons. And in your spirit, in your heart, you cry out, Abba, Father, because he sent forth the Holy Spirit. Now, this is one of my favorite things about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. I don't do a full orb doctrine of the Holy Spirit today, but just notice one of the designations of the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, the Genesis 1-2, Spirit of Elohim, Ruach Elohim. The third person of the Trinity is called the Spirit of God the Son, the Spirit of Christ. And you have to ask the question, in what sense is the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ? He's the Spirit of Elohim. He's the Spirit of Yahweh. Why is he called the Spirit of the Christ? And it's because I contend that in Jesus' earthly ministry, in his humanity, restricting the independent use of his sovereign omnipotence, he operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. He did what he did in the Spirit's power. He cast out demons in the power of the third person of the Trinity. And in that sense, he pioneered the spiritual life we enjoy. Not that we're exercising demons or necessarily healing the sick, but in that we are walking in the works that God has for us in the power of the third person of the Trinity. I will prove to you beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus cast out demons and he did his works largely in the power of the third person of the Trinity by pointing you to Matthew chapter 12 in which they said Jesus was casting out demons in the power of Satan. And Jesus said, you will not be forgiven the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You're saying that what the Spirit did through me, Satan was doing through me, and that is to blaspheme the third person. He said, in fact, he said the blasphemy of the Father or the Son would be forgiven, but not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ, His Son, in our hearts because He is the one in whom Jesus did His works in His earthly ministry. And so here you and I are. Notice what we've been told. That power which sat upon or resided in, sorry, in Jesus Christ for His earthly work has been put into our hearts so that we can be about the same mission not that we'll die on the cross, not that we'll work miracles to, 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 um, to speak forth direct revelation from God, but that we will make disciples on the basis of those things that God has already revealed. You're sons, and so God has sent forth his spirit. My point that I had said before was that one of the key indications that you're an heir with Christ is that you have the Holy Spirit. Can you go away from this message this morning, this afternoon? Will you be able to leave here today and say, I have trusted in Christ as my Savior, so I absolutely know, based on God's testimony, that I've been born again into his household. I'm God's kid. In a special way that people that haven't trusted in Christ can't say. Can you furthermore go from today and say, and since I've been born in his house, 
And because of God's benevolence and his grace and his love for me, he's also designated me as his heir. And he's indicated that inheritance by giving me the Holy Spirit. Can you go forth from here today and say, I have the Holy Spirit living in me, and this demonstrates my inheritance, my identity as a son of God, as one marked out to inherit with Christ. Can you say that about yourself? Can you know this about you? Because that's your identity. And it's intertwined in a way you could never separate, inseparably intertwined with your purpose. Hopefully it's just straight obvious. I've got something God wants me to do. And being who he's made me, he's got something he wants me to do. Therefore, you're no longer a slave but a son. In the sense that you're no longer identified as, you know, just dinner kids come in for dinner. No, there's, this, there's been a designation, a separation, a segregation. And if you're a son, then an heir through God. You're supposed to come away from this idea. I'm supposed to come away from this idea with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I'm supposed to say, I don't even begin to really sense what God has done for me, who I am in him. I don't think of myself this way. I don't look in the mirror and say, heir of God, right? But the spirit of God in your heart is proof that you are. If you turn, please, to Ephesians chapter 1 as we close. In Ephesians 1. On the camera back there, just let it be the, 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 the picture here. Don't worry about the showing anything. In Ephesians 1, you have some of the most challenging language in the, in the whole Bible and some of the most enriching language in the Bible. We've been holding off on doing Ephesians. We're, we're going to come to it soon. But in Ephesians chapter 1, you have the great long sentence, which is one complete thought, one connected, intertwined sentence, which is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Maybe you knew that, that Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is one sentence. Boy, let's get out and diagram it. Me and Nathan are going home today and diagram. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Because of all these relative clauses that Paul throws in, talking about Jesus and the fact that being in Christ, you have all these factors, including your inheritance. He starts off with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. See, there's your relative clause. The Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Why did God give you this adoption designation as heir? Because of who God is, the kind intention of his preference, of his desire, his thelema. That's what God wanted. Next time that idea creeps in that God's holding something back from you, that God's prohibitions are mean that he's being mean to me, or God's commands are that he's uh, demanding too much from me. Remember, we're talking about the God who made you for himself and loves you with an infinite love. He's the one who designated you the heir of God. Now, we tell these little kids to believe in Christ, and they grow up believing in Christ. But you have to grow into an awareness of what that got you when you first trusted in Christ and who you are. 
See, we're making deliveries, right? We're, making, we're, make, we're trying to make deliveries uh, in, in a, uh, like DoorDash or something, in a Bugatti Veyron. We're, we're like, that's my favorite car they don't make anymore. That's the fastest street car at the time they made it, like 250 miles an hour. If you didn't know what you're doing, on the track, they could get up to 280, I think, 275. 276, Pastor, okay. There you are, you're, you're in this Bugatti and you don't even know, you have no idea what to do with this thing and you're trying to make deliveries for DoorDash. You're an Uber. You're Ubering around in a Bugatti Veyron and there's nothing wrong with Uber. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a side hustle, but I'm like, that's not the piece of equipment for that. Let me make a better illustration. I like this one better. You know those giant dump trucks that uh, R.G. Letourneau and those people made build the highway system? The giant dump trucks, I don't see them that often anymore. You stand next to the tire, you know, like I stand next to it, and it's like five or six feet taller than me and the, the wheel. You're making Uber runs with that thing. <laughs> see, that thing is, it can move a whole lot of material. It's for big work that if you run that thing all day, you've gotten pretty far down the highway and moving material one way to another, and you could get a lot done, and we could build the interstate. And you're running around wasting all the resources of this awesome piece of equipment because you're using it for the wrong purpose. And that's what Ephesians 1 is supposed to in part do for us, to say, I've got identity and therefore purpose. Verse 5 says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved in Christ. In him we also have redemption through the, his blood, the forgiveness of sins, of our, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the, the kind intention, his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to a, an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ. I think that's parallel to Galatians 4. Things in the heavens and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him also you, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Can't say it in one breath, but you're only supposed to have one capitalized first word and one period at the end of that long chunk. And everything in Ephesians after that is a therefore. Everything is a follow-on. It's a whole logical chain, and it's a beautiful thing. You have the Holy Spirit because you're God's heir. And the way he demonstrates your inheritance, and you have part of it now, not all of it, is the giving of the Holy Spirit. So now what? Well, look at all the therefores, all the commands, all the instructions in the rest of Ephesians. We'll look, all, look at all of them, but... My brethren who challenged me about emphasizing God's commands for believers. Therefore, in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as beloved children. 
be imitators of God. Well, that's putting a load on us. Yeah, it's an impossible way. Imitate God? I'd say I need the Holy Spirit to bring that one about in me. Imitate God as beloved children and so walk in love just as Christ also loved you. I've got to love to the same extent that Jesus loves. This is too heavy. I can't possibly. No, the Spirit of God is in you. You can do everything God wants you to do and the fruit of the Spirit is love. When Jesus said you're going to move mountains, some of us are like, I wonder when that's going to happen. These are impossible challenge. You do not have the strength to lift this, but God can work it in you. Our Father, we thank you for eternal life, the enjoyment we've had of it today to think through who we are in Christ and therefore what is our purpose. Thank you for the language, this facet of revelation on our riches, the language of inheritance and adoption and sonship. Father, don't let us forget who we are Don't let us fall short of understanding all that we can of what you did for us when we trusted in Christ. Don't let us forget our purpose based on our identity so that we'll be about your work. Father, don't let us waste our lives with distraction from the deceiver. Let us walk with you, be about your work. We pray in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.